Good morning, everybody. It's great to see you guys. My name is Josh Pollard. I'm the adult ministries pastor here at Renovation Church. Uh, let me ask you a quick question. Do you ever read the Bible and you get through a section and all you can think about is like, what on earth is this guy talking about? Confession time happens to me all the time, especially when I'm reading Paul's letters. Uh, and before you judge me, even the Apostle Peter says in 2 Peter 3 that Paul's letters are hard to understand sometimes. So uh, <laughs> I'm up to Peter's status at least, I guess. So, um, Now we're studying today, we're getting uh, back into one of Paul's letters, the letter that he wrote from prison to the church in Ephesus called the Book of Ephesians. We're going to be in chapter 4. And we studied, <clears throat> excuse me, chapters 1 through 3 last fall. Today we're picking up back in chapter 4 with one of those passages that is just kind of challenging and confusing the first time you read it. But if we read it slow and we kind of dive into it, we're going to see that it's actually a really important passage about the way we understand what church is, what it even is. Um, you know, what are we doing here on Sunday morning? Why do we come here? And hopefully this study will help impact the way you approach being a part of a church. So we're going to take a really hard look at it. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. And open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're using the Bibles under the chair, well, we'll also be in Ephesians chapter 4. But we'll be on page 800. That's where you can find that. Now, as you're finding that, chapter 4 is really the turning point in this whole book. The first three chapters of the book uh, go from Paul teaching all this really deep theology, things we would call doctrine, which are like core beliefs about why God saved the Gentiles, uh, which are not Jewish people, why he saved them, how he saved them, and, and how they now fit into God's story and into his promises and into his covenant that he had with Israel. And now we get to chapters four, five, and six, and you're going to see that they're all about how that truth of how God and why God saved the Gentiles should affect the daily life of the church. And you can see that the two halves are split very cleanly, actually. It's very clean split. The first half, theology, doctrine, deep teachings. The second half, application. Because we have what's called imperative statements in, in Ephesians, which are like commands, okay? And there's 41 of them in the book of Ephesians, where Paul says, do this, do that, live like this, don't live like that. And we see one of those come in chapters 1 through 3. And we see the other 40 of those come in 4 through 6. So it's a very clean break. And the, the verses we get to today, in the beginning of chapter 4, are the bridge between the doctrine and the deeds, right? Showing that we need to have this deep theological teaching, these deep doctrines, official beliefs about who God is and why he does what he does in order for any of these deeds to make sense. So let's open up. We're going to just read verse 1 to begin uh, as our launch pad to seeing this bridge between the two. So it starts out, this is Paul writing from prison. He says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then, and I want you to stop right there. Good job. We got pretty far. Uh, then, it's a really important word, actually. It can also be translated, therefore, which basically means everything I'm about to say is based upon the truth of what I just said. Okay? So keep that in mind. It could say this. It says, we'll start back at the beginning. As a prisoner for the Lord, based on everything I just said, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Okay, so what is this calling that they have received? Seems important. Well, the church in Ephesus is made up of both Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians, but the letter is primarily directed at Gentile believers. And what Paul talks about 
uh, when, he, when he talks about this calling that the Gentiles have received, we see back in chapters 1 and 2 that it is the fact that the grace of God has called the Gentiles out of their life of sin and death and being far from him, and he has called them to life in him so that they can have a place in the inheritance with God's people. God has called them to himself and saved them. So everything he's about to say is based upon the fact that the church is one body of believers based on Christ's blood, and that's it. Not Jewishness, not being a Gentile or anything else. It's just based on Christ's blood and it is unified. And so, in today's verse, he says that we should live lives worthy of that calling. The fact that we as Gentiles, probably all of us, if not the vast majority of us, are now called into the promises made to Israel. And so how do we do that? He's going to go on in verses 2 through 6 to tell us more about what it means to uh, live worthy to the calling. Verse 2, he says, Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Okay, so what he's saying here, well, what he's not saying is that to live a life worthy of the calling is, doesn't mean that you have to go now prove that you are worthy of this salvation. That's not what he's saying. He's not saying that you have to go make sure you measure up and you are worth the death of the Son of God, okay? Because that would be a total contradiction of everything he taught in chapters 1 through 3. And we have to base everything in 4, 5, 6 on what he taught in 1, 2, 3. Because our doctrine, our theology has to lead to our conclusions. So he's not saying that you have to make sure you measure up now Make sure you are worthy of this place in God's family as if you have to earn it in order to keep it or something like that, prove you were worth the cost or something like that. That's not what he's saying. Instead, what he's doing here, he's acknowledging that just because something is theologically true does not make it automatically lived out. He's telling the people in Ephesus, to value their life of salvation by living it out. See, the Jewish Christians there and the Gentile Christians there had a really hard time of seeing themselves as one body, as the same. So Paul first has to teach the deep foundational theological doctrinal reasons behind why they are unified, and then he can tell them how to live that out. So that there is an enduring reason behind what they're doing. If he doesn't base it on a firm foundation, it's going to wash away eventually. So, what he's, uh, uh, so that's what he's saying here. And I think that the same is true for the church today. You still have to make every effort to value your life of freedom from sin by living it out. And that can take a lot of work. A lot of work. The Christian life, much of it, is a lot of work to value it properly. Of course, it's God himself that grows us, right? He does the work. But we're in a relationship. We participate with him in that. It takes two to tango, they say. You are not nothing to God in that process of you growing. 
You're a partner with God, as Philippians says, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You're doing it together with him. And I think that what Paul's getting at when he talks about being humble and gentle and patient and forbearing with each other, he's acknowledging that it's really hard work to even just get along sometimes, even for God's people. You know, I think like we imagine the ancient church, the first century church in, in scripture, and we imagine them just like holding pinkies and skipping around and singing kumbaya all together like it was totally perfect all the time. And if that was true, we would have a very different Bible. Because if you've read like this New Testament part right here, a whole bunch of it is just the apostles telling the church to get along, to stop fighting with each other and to treat each other better because of the truth of what Christ has done. Not just because, but because there's a firm foundation for doing it. And I think that one of the challenges that the American church, or even just the church in the West, probably globally, honestly, faces these days, is that we so misunderstand what it means to be a church. Now, we think that a church is where a bunch of people that believe in Jesus come together to hear a sermon on the Bible and to sing some songs in worship and see your friends in the lobby, and that's that. But then when some relational strife happens or you disagree about something or there's discomfort and arguments or something embarrassing happens, people just leave and go to the church down the road as if that was okay and normal and biblical and theologically supported for you to go do that. But it's not. And I think it's because partially we've lost sight of how doctrine should lead our deeds. You remember this whole section is based off the calling that was the focus of chapters one through three. The only reason Paul can tell them to work at being unified with any hope of it working out is because he's taught them about the nature of the church being unified because of Christ's blood. If it wasn't for that doctrine, then trying to be unified as a church would not have any enduring reason behind it. Now let's be honest, I'll be honest. If I only valued church for the fuzzy feelings it gave me and the uh, cool songs and the theological tidbits that I got from it, I wouldn't come. I am an introvert. I would rather hide in a corner somewhere than come be part of a crowd. And honestly, these days, I could just stay at home and put on my favorite Pandora worship station, listen to my favorite old hymns, and watch my favorite preacher on YouTube and watch birds out my window all morning, and it would be incredible. Doesn't that sound great? And you know what? That's what most people do these days. You know, you just watch church online, but church is not a podcast. It is so much more than that. Why would I come be with you people when I could do that at home? As wonderful as you are. I love you guys. It's because church is more than that. And because God makes it more than that. Okay, so let's keep reading in verse 7 to 13, and we'll see more. It says this, says, But to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. This is why it says, when he ascended on high, he took many captives and gave gifts to his people. What does he ascended mean except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions? He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ gave himself uh, uh, Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the, teach, uh, the, pro- the pastors, there we go, and teachers to equip his 
people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Okay. Whew. Now that's one of those sections where you're like, what on earth is he talking about, right? It seems like he's going in 10 directions at once, and I don't know. But I think, like, if you look at it, the first thing we see him say is that Christ himself has given us the grace to do the hard work of being united as a church. He's done it himself. He's done the work in his death. It's because it's his body that we are united, not because of our efforts. It's the theological reality, the doctrinal reality of him being unified in one body. He's done the work. And then not only the work, but also given us the grace to work it out, the favor, the blessing, the help to work it out. And then we get to this part in verses 8 through 10 about all the ascending and descending. And without going deep into the weeds there, the whole point of that is that he's saying Christ is God so that the help he gives us to do this is a big deal. It's a big deal that it's him himself doing it. So big, in fact, that the church, being the mature church, is the fullness of Christ. The fullness of, that's a high calling. It's not just songs in a sermon. It's the fullness of Christ, the Messiah. I think that's part of what he's been teaching this whole book. If you look back, even in, in the first chapter, Ephesians 1.22, I've got it on the screen. I think I gave him a typo, and it might say 2.22, but it's 1.22. He said, oh, they fixed it. Okay, good job, guys. Our team is great. It says this. It says, and God placed all things under Christ's feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. That's church. That's what it means when we come together, that we are the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. You see, church is not just a sermon and some songs. It's church is not just a bunch of like-minded people that come together Church is even more than just the community of believers. It is even more than that. It's the fullness of him who fills the universe in every way. That's a high calling. That's a lot deeper. It's kind of weird, though, honestly, right? <laughs> to think that you and you and you and me together, we get together and somehow God has filled everything in every way with, his, with us, through us. We fill everything with his power and his authority and his grace and his justice. But I don't think that it has to be that weird. If you're familiar with what scripture teaches about redeemed humanity pulled out of sin, out of our sin nature. It says many things like this. It says things like we are united with Christ, that we are one with the Son of God. It says things like we will share in his inheritance with him as God's children, that we are children of God. It says that we will judge angels. It says that we'll sit next to him on the thrones in heaven. It says that we are temples of the Holy Spirit, that God lives in me, in us. It says that we are his ambassadors, <clears throat> his representatives to creation. We represent God to creation. And that's a high calling. 
These are all things Scripture says about people that are redeemed out of sin. And it's a really high calling. That's church. Church is important. But we also see in this section here that even though this is theologically true, okay, it's what Scripture teaches, that being the fullness of Christ is what the church is, it doesn't automatically make it a lived-out action of the church. It takes work, it says. It takes maturing. It takes each other. And God's given us tools to mature into that. It says he's given the apostles, he's given the prophets, he's given the evangelists and pastors and teachers. And each one of these has a different role in helping the church mature through time, through events, and even through history. So we have the apostles, for example. They gave us both revelation of God's word and they served as eyewitnesses of Christ. The prophets gave us revelation of God's word at the prompting of the Holy Spirit. And we see back in chapter 2 that it says God's house, that's another name for the church, is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ as its cornerstone. It says that in chapter 2, verse 20. So the apostles and the prophets are foundational. But then we also have evangelists that God has given us to go share that good news and spread it to new people that haven't heard it yet. And we also have pastors and teachers to care for and to teach people in the church. And altogether, they work to show us that the church is the fullness of Christ. It says that they are given to do what for the church? It says they're given to the church to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ, that's you, that's me, us, may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God. That's what we're supposed to do. That's what church is for. So don't come to church expecting entertainment. Don't come expecting life hacks or nice, cheerful words to get you through your tough week. That's not our job as pastors. Our job is to equip you for service to one another so you can build up the body of Christ in unity of faith. That's trusting God. You help each other trust God through whatever situations you're going through and knowledge of the Son of God. That's doctrine. That's theology. That's biblical knowledge. That's the reason why we can trust God. You're supposed to help each other know why you can trust God. So faith and knowledge that you would believe in Christ and that you would understand why you believe in Christ. Our job as pastors, as the church, is to teach you doctrine, why you should trust in God, so that you live a life worthy of the calling you received, so that you value your salvation accurately. Then you will be equipped to serve so that the church can become mature Attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That is church. It's not just a sermon and songs and donuts. It is the fullness of the one who fills the universe. That is church. That is a high calling, people. That is important. That is much more important than a podcast. Sadly, many churches shy away from teaching doctrine before deeds. They go right to deeds, how to live. And they shy away from it sometimes because honestly, theology can seem less useful at first, maybe. Not as entertaining. 
kind of and difficult to teach because it's detailed, it's nuanced. But it's not an excuse to shy away from teaching doctrine just because it's technical or complex in nature. You should avoid churches like that. Sometimes churches avoid teaching doctrine because it's high stakes. Doctrine is high stakes. When we're teaching biblical theology, biblical doctrine, we're making absolute truth claims that have eternal consequences, and it's really, it's really intimate. It's really personal to people, both the speaker and the hearer, so they might avoid it. So let's talk about something easier, a little more comfortable. Right? You should avoid churches like that. Other times, churches avoid it because it can be offensive to teach that this is wrong or this is right or this is how God thinks. These are his decrees. This is why he says these things. But teaching that clear doctrine of who God is, his nature, and why he does what he does is foundational for everything because it's in our doctrine that we say what is true and it is what we know to be true in our hearts that decides how we live. It has to be doctrine before deeds. It has to be the why before the how. And if you live you can try to live a religious life with poor doctrine, but you will end up in all kinds of trouble if you try that. In fact, our passage today will call people like that infants, in that they might mean well, but they don't know any better, and they are helpless, and they're really vulnerable. It says it like this in verse 14. We'll pick back up. It says, then, which means once we're mature in Christ... Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves, and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Let me give you a kind of a practical example of how this plays out in our culture. So have you ever heard that the statistic that the divorce rate is the same for Christians and secular non-religious people. It's the same. Have you heard that statistic? Okay, that statistic has been around for a, quite a while now. And depending on who you ask and where you look, somewhere between like 35 to 50% of first marriages end in divorce. But what researchers find is that that statistic, that, that uh, them being the same, only holds up when you only ask, are you a Christian? If they say yes, you put them in this bucket. They say no, you put them in that bucket, and you just have these two groups. But if you break down the data into three groups, if you break it down into one group of nominal Christians, that's Christians in name only, they don't engage in their faith, they don't go to church, they don't read scripture or pray, they don't follow Christ, they're not Christians, honestly, but they say, yes, I am a Christian. You put them in that one box, and then in another box you put secular non-religious people that just have no, you know, no belief, and then you go to a third box of church-engaged active Christians in a third box. If you split the data like that, it tells a very different story. And you actually find out that active church members are by far the lowest divorce rate of any demographic they study. In fact, they're up to 50% less likely than secular non-religious people to get a divorce ever. Not only are they least likely to get divorced, they're actually happy in their marriages. They are the happiest people of all the demographics they study. Not only are they happy, they also spend the most time with their kids. However, if you look at nominal Christians, on the other hand, they are the most likely to get a divorce out of every denomination they, or every uh, demographic they study. They are 20% more likely to, 
get a divorce than secular people. They all are also the least happy in their marriages. They spend the least amount of time with their kids. And they even have the highest rates of domestic abuse and violence in their marriage. That's nominal Christians, not secular people. And I think the reason for this is that nominal Christians have weak doctrine behind their actions. They get a little bit of Christian culture, and they like that culture. And because they like the culture, they find that they think they have religious backing to their poor actions. And they may say they are Christians, but they have no church body to equip them in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. They think they have a religious life, but they don't know the theological motivations for that life, so it's not enduring. There's no reason behind their actions. They lack training in doctrine and in faith. They try to control their outward actions without any inward formation, and thus they are vulnerable like infants. That's why we need to invite them in. We need to preach the gospel to them. Now, all that to say, just going to church, of course, doesn't make it all perfectly either. The passage goes on in verse 15 and 16 to close out today like this, and I think it's an important inclusion. Verse 15 says, instead, that's instead of being infants, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become, in every respect, the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So it still takes work on our part and with each other. And one of the best ways that I think you can implement this at our church is in your small groups. If you're not in a small group, not in a house group yet, join one today. You need to be in one. When you're in your groups, we have to learn to ask each other the question, why? So that we can start to examine our motivations for our Christian life. Because here's the truth. No matter where you're at on this journey with Christ or without him or whatever, your doctrine dictates your action already. It's true for everybody, no matter what. What you believe dictates what you do and also how you make meaning of your experiences. It's already true for everyone. You already do this. The challenge is that your doctrine might be wrong. So you can be a really great A-plus, gold star, small group member if you just start asking people why. Look for their motivations behind what's going on in their life and why they understand what's going on the way they do. Is your relationship with God good right now? Well, why? Why do you think that? Is it bad right now? Why? Why do you think it's bad right now? Or maybe are you like engaging in a, a certain Christian discipline like scripture reading or prayer or fasting? Why are you doing that? What's your motivation? What are you trying to get out of it? What from scripture do you see that's going to guide you through that so that you can see the motivation and that will help them do it uh, more healthily? Um, you can ask, are, are you coming to encounter on Tuesday? Why? To hear some cool music you like, to see your friends? Or is there some deeper theological reason that you can say, I'm coming because this is how the body of Christ comes together to reverently and joyfully praise him for the calling that he has called us with, out of a life of sin and to a life uh, with him. So we're going to learn a lot 
uh, over the next seven, now six weeks, in Ephesians chapters four, five, and six about how we should live. But if you want to prepare for that and get the most out of that study, don't go read chapters four, five, and six. Go back and read chapters one, two, and three a bunch. Now way you'll understand the foundation of why he's saying what he's saying in the next six weeks. That way we can grow not just in our outward actions, but in our doctrine. We will know our calling more clearly and we'll be able to live a life worthy of that calling. And lastly, to live a life worthy of the calling, first you have to know what that calling is. And that calling is the gospel. It is that God has called you out of a life of sin and into a life with him, It's the good news that Jesus died on the cross for our sins to make a way for us to have a relationship with him. Not just because we were worthy of it or something like that, but because he just loves us so much that he did it out of his own grace. That's good news, and he's calling you into his family to be a part of his fullness. And if you want to know more about that or you want to start that today, in that relationship, then our follow-up team is going to be over here after the service. I want you to just go talk to them, and they'll help you out. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you for today, uh, for a chance to study your word and to, uh, to know you better. And I just pray that our church continues to dive deep into the motivations behind what you tell us to do in Scripture and why we do things with our lives. Uh, we just praise you, and we want to glorify you with our lives. Amen.